This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. We uh, had more code zeros over this past week, and I, I get the fact that the weather was was treacherous, treacherous rather, and it was kind of messy. But nonetheless, it's always troubling when you hear these stories. Uh, when uh, the Hamilton Ambulance Services is stretched to the limits, as it was this past weekend. Are Hamilton ambulances being stretched to the limit? Well, yeah, clearly they are. Icy weather from uh, the weekend, uh, overloaded emergency rooms, uh, too long waiting in emergency rooms for, uh, for for paramedics. I mean, on and on it goes. These are issues that we've been talking about for years. And and you'd like to think at some point they're going to get settled, but it doesn't seem to be happening. Let me bring uh, Mario Pastorero into the uh, program. He, has, of course, is the president of Opsu Local 256, and uh, he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to bring us up to speed. Mario, how are you doing today? I'm uh, doing very well, Bill. Thank you for having me on. It seems Good. to be an annual event for me and you. It seems to be, uh, <laughs> almost semi-annual, because we seem to have a, a problem in the summertime. We seem to have a problem in the wintertime with this sort of thing, Mario. Uh, why don't we just forget about the weather as a factor and just understand the fact that we just haven't really addressed this to the extent that we really should have. This is uh, this is troubling when you've got a situation like this past weekend. Absolutely, and we keep saying it was an unusual event. There's nothing really unusual about it. Uh, people have accidents, call volume spikes, um, the frequency and how long code zeros last is not necessarily predictable. But what is predictable is that they will occur, and we don't seem to be prepared with sufficient frontline staff to meet those demands. Why not? Uh, you know, you've been talking about this for years. Uh, you and I have been talking about this for years. Uh, some staff members have been talking about this. They seem to understand that there's a problem, yet th- here we go again. Well, in spite of us appreciating council's investment. Uh, in providing additional resources over the last couple of years. Uh, truly, we continue to play catch-up. Uh, staffing has remained unchecked properly, uh, not properly resourced for a number of years. And uh, I, three years ago, when the existing management came on board, they identified the need for approximately nine to ten additional frontline ambulances. Since that time, we've seen four and an additional one that came on board as a result of reallocation of existing resources. So uh, the bottom line is our service remains underfunded uh, based on all industry measurements. We fall far below. Uh, What's also disturbing is that there's to be a projected increase in call volume for our services at an annual rate of approximately 4%. And that has existed since 2008. So unless we actually meet the demand with the appropriate level of staffing, we will always be behind. We will always face challenges. Response times will increase, and we won't be able to provide the good care that we want to provide to our patients and our citizens. So. This has been a long road for you uh, in, in the discussions you and I have had over the years about this. Uh, for, the, for the longest time, it seemed as if city staff didn't even believe uh, your concerns about this, that you needed more staffing and you needed more units. Uh, they've come around to that, so I give them credit for that. But uh, it's, it's, it's got to be frustrating. I mean, you know, when they themselves identify that you probably need 10 new units and you've got five so far, uh, clearly you're just not getting the job done because you don't have the staff, you don't have the tools to do the job. And it's uh, disturbing. I and mean, we've uh, enjoyed a good relationship with the new management. We've tried to collaborate in a number of different areas. We've been able to develop some programs, community paramedicine, social navigator programs, in order to try to reduce uh, the number of patients that actually rely on our ambulance service. But having said that, the council is aware of the predicament we're in. Uh, management just last year provided uh, a very detailed paper, budget and staff analysis, and it uh, identified quite clearly um, that the actual number of ambulances staffed at any point in time is or should be based on the anticipated level of workload, with sufficient ambulances being available in the right places at the right times to provide a level of response time reliability that is both clinically and publicly acceptable. That's a quote. That is a quote, and that has not been met. And when you add on the increasing call volume from year to year to the tune of approximately 4%, um, you know, obviously we're in this predicament. And, I, and I'll tell you another thing. March 10, 2016, front page of the Hamilton Spectator, just to give you a sense of what some of the root causes are and the inequity in, uh, in budget uh, allocation between police, fire, and EMS. In 2016, the average residential taxpayer paid $3,286. We occupy a very thin slice of that. Police occupies $588 of that $3,286. Fire, 
349. EMS, are you ready? I'm ready. $79. That's 22 cents per day for residential taxpayer. That's the inequity that I speak about. That's the underfunding that translates into an inadequate number of amateurs on the front lines. And unless that's addressed and handled head on, we will continue to have these discussions and try to find excuses and apply band-aids that don't work. Mario, and again, I understand that you've got a pretty good working relationship. Mr. Sanderson seems to be a lot more open-minded about the sorts of concerns that you've been expressing for years and that we, the public, have been expressing for years. But but let's let, you just crunch some numbers. I mean, the other number here that's very relevant to this discussion are, are the number of code zeros. I mean, some people characterized this past weekend as all well, an unusual weekend because of the bad weather. You've had fifty three of them already this year. I, I mean, that's more than last year. That's up from last year. There's there's a trend here. There's, there's a trend. I think what's bothersome since the very first code zero in two thousand and six, Bill, um, which created such a fur and then resulted in a, in a, a third party review, which acknowledged that we were severely understaffed and there was an investment, you know, thanks to council and frontline services. Uh, it was predicted back then that, you know, there would be a, a, an annual increase in call volume and demands for our service, and we were only applying a band-aid at that point in time. We have not measured, we have not sufficiently addressed the issue of our call volume with the requisite number of frontline resources. And until we do that, we're going to face these same problems. Now, code zero events. Um, the, 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 everybody speaks about code zero events. We don't presently track events when we only have two ambulances or three ambulances, and that's not acceptable. But the code zero events onto themselves have been underreported, both in quantum and in frequency, because they're tracked by ambulance dispatch. But I can tell you, we're on the front lines and we see it every day. We're under-resourced. Our patients will suffer unless we prioritize what I think we, we, as, as we ought to and, and properly fund our ambulance service. There will always be competing interests with city council, but I think there also has to be priorities. And I, I cited some numbers as to how much we actually take up of the budget pie, and it's minuscule compared to the other emergency services. So decisions have to be made. They always, they're always difficult, but I think paramedic service, EMS service in Hamilton has to be a priority. And I don't think it has been at least to the sufficient degree that it should be. Mario, is it true that, uh, that we actually had to borrow ambulances from another jurisdiction over the weekend because of the call volume? We rely on neighboring ambulance services to bail us out, pure and simple. It's embarrassing when you have patients waiting an hour, an hour and a half for falls, for fractures. These are almost third-world response times. The level of clinical excellence that we can provide is also commensurate with our ability to get to the patient. And the, the quality of patient care is based on us being able to get to the patient. When we're hoping for either ancillary services or neighboring services to bail us out, you know, I, I think we have to recognize that there's something wrong here. And, you know... We hate to shoot straight, but we're disappointed that for 2017, our management didn't put forth a request for enhancement of services. And looking forward to 2018, when it becomes a municipal election year, it'll be also difficult to get additional dollars. I think this has to be reprioritized, though. Well, absolutely. I mean, the numbers cry out for, for some action here. I mean, when you look at this, and, and the, the concern I guess I've got here is, is with the call volume that you had this weekend, and who knows, Maria, it could happen again next weekend. You don't know this yet. Uh, relying on, on neighboring services to provide ambulances, I mean, you, you've, we've talked, in, and so have council talked for years now about wait times after you make that 911 call. Uh, if you got to wait for somebody to come from Halton or from Niagara to, uh, to respond to a call here in Hamilton, what's that do to those numbers? And, and what's that do to the person who's waiting for somebody to actually come and get them to the hospital? Well, I think things have to be looked at from a patient's perspective. They call 911. I mean, they're not calling for a pizza. They're calling because they're in need of medical assistance. And having to wait um, for an unacceptable period of time and then us not being able to meet their needs at times of medical distress is embarrassing. Us having to rely on neighboring services to render that care and bail us out at a cost, because there's also a cost to doing that. This does not occur free. We have to then repatriate the cost to those neighboring services. 
But bottom line, on a comparison level, based on all the industry measurements, we are under-resourced. And unless we pay, play catch-up by investing the required dollars and have an appropriate frontline paramedic staff, we will continue to find excuses and apply band-aids that are ineffective and inefficient. Mario, there's another situation uh, that occurred this past weekend. First of all, the volumes, obviously, and the fact that you don't have enough units to be able to respond to this, that's a problem. But I'm also told that uh, that a number of your staff actually had to wait extremely long times at some of the hospitals uh, before they could offload patients and get back onto the road to do some of the responding that's going on here. I I thought they'd address that years ago. Why is that still going on? Well, uh, offload delays have been occurring with uh, varying degrees, time intervals. Uh, ER staff within the hospitals are overwhelmed as well as the lack of bed capacity in the emergency department bill, mm-hmm. lack of bed capacity in the hospital units and the wards, there's lack of long-term placement beds within the community. So there's a series of cascading events that lead to offload delays. But we've, as a union, both on a local and provincial level, we've advanced the proposition that perhaps ambulances should be able to transport patients to urgent care centers, select patients, perhaps not uh, the high priority ones, but a, a number or a percentage of our patients should be able to be transported to the urgent care centers, taking some of the pressure off the three emergency departments. And that hasn't happened. Um, but what also hasn't happened is the golden grail solutions that have been promised that offload delays are being mitigated with an additional RN being able to take your patient. That hasn't panned out. Again, these are just band-aids and excuses. So a number of things have to be done uh, over and above uh, resourcing our service properly with more ambulances, I think the province has to step up and find different ways to meaningfully address offload delays. And to this date, it has not done that. Yeah, I, I feel badly for the staff of the hospital. Don't get me wrong. I'm not blaming them for that. Uh, you know, because I understand, I mean, they had to bring extra beds down, I guess, and set them up in hallways and in in in, in or you know observation rooms, etc., to try to deal with some of the people that were there on the weekend. But isn't it funny? I mean, you know, we had this discussion earlier this week about all these uh, finance ministers and health ministers meeting up in Ottawa trying to get a health care accord, and you know, they're squabbling about this, that, and the other thing. You're the guys that pay the price for this. <laughs> you're, you're right down. You know that was kind of an abstract thing. That's way up there in Ottawa, and they're talking millions here and billions there. But this is this is right down here. This is the grassroots, and this is the result of that when there's not enough funding and not enough resources allocated to the proper services in in healthcare. It's it's you and it's the people in the ERs, and it's obviously it's the patients that are the ones that are suffering as a result of that. Well, you're bang on. So you know what's it going to take for them to pay attention? Um, I'm not really sure. Um, obviously, um, whatever's been applied has been ineffective. You know, oftentimes in, in, in the emergency departments, you'll see paramedics, um, in order to free up a crew with their patient, they'll take on two and three patients. We're caring, assessing, and treating more than one patient in the emergency department. We're rendering patient care, administering medications, in order to free up our, our colleagues that can respond to the next call. This should not be borne by us. The whole offload issue and the, the bed capacity is a provincial issue, but it's being essentially borne by the, the local municipality and our, our patients, our taxpayers. It's unacceptable. So there's a number of different initiatives that have to uh, occur, and whether they're uh, not serious about it or they're too inept to deal with it, something's not right. This has been going on for far too many years for it to just be uh, excusable. This is inexcusable. And it's having an impact on public health in every municipality, especially Hamilton. Well, and to your point from a couple of minutes ago, too, I, I still remember the discussion you and I had when that first Code Zero happened. And it was, oh my God, how could we ever allow this to happen? 53 of them so far this year. Uh, and it's just, a, oh yeah, we had another rough weekend. Ho-hum. Uh, <laughs> This is this is problematic, and I understand. I, I understand your point too. But maybe maybe some of these people could be delivered to urgent care services. I mean, if somebody slipped and they've hurt their wrist or something, but you are you have advanced care paramedics. I mean, you guys can make that initial diagnosis and make that determination. But you know, there, there's people that get heart attacks in this weather because of shoveling snow and and trying to clean ice off and things like this. And they're the ones that need to be prioritized right now. And and clearly, you guys can't make that decision because there's nowhere for them to go. Exactly. And I mean, getting back to the Code Zero events again, uh, I want to reemphasize that because they're reported by third party, uh, council's also been made aware of the fact that they're under-reported, both in numbers 
and both in the length of time that our staff remains on code zero events. But code zeros or code whatever, code red, whatever you want to call them, when there's one or less ambulances available for any period of time, that's unacceptable. In 2006, it created a fur. Now it's almost become a data entry point. And how about when there's only two ambulances available, Bill? We don't track that. We don't communicate that. How about when there's only three ambulances? We cover a vast geography, 1,117 kilometers, square kilometers. That's what we cover. That's a vast geography with uh, escarpments. We've got harbor, all sorts of different impediments that we're responsible to cover um, when people call 911. And we just don't have the staff. We don't have the depth. And at least from my perspective, city council has to relook at the funding inequity that exists between police, fire, and EMS and make some decisions so we can at least start playing on a level playing field. We're constantly playing catch-up. We're going to constantly endure code zero events. And we can't just blame code zero events on offload delays because code zero events occur in the absence of offload delays, which points to the fact we don't have sufficient ambulances to respond to our call for help. So we like to find excuses and apply band-aids, but we have to shoot straight and provide the facts. Code zero events occur even when there is an offload delay. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. City of Hamilton has uh, posted responses uh, for the most, what they consider, frequently asked questions about the LRT project. Uh, well, this is, well, you see FAQs on just about everybody's website these days. Uh, I'm not sure if there's only 77 questions that need to be asked. I'm not sure if you're even going to convince anybody one way or another uh, by posting answers to these sorts of things. Bring John Best into this, of uh, course, publisher of the Bay Observer. And uh, first of all, John, welcome back to the program. Been a while. How you been? Yeah, it's a pleasure to be with you, Bill. I'm fine. Uh, is this going to uh, change anybody's ideas, anybody's mind about LRT if you put these things up here? I mean, everybody seems to be craving information right now. Is this the kind of information they need? Well, I mean, it's 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 useful information. I I, I went through the the questions, and and certainly, uh, you know, I mean, it's uh, it's you know good factual information. But in in terms of uh, if it's meant as a, a persuasive uh, tool, I I doubt very much. I think the 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 lines on this issue are pretty firmly drawn. Well, so uh, I, I looked at the at the page; it already had attracted a few comments from readers, and uh, they weren't asking any of those kind of questions. They were still dealing with the existential issue of, of whether or why uh, at all. So you still see that every time Every time there's a story uh, in The Spectator about LRT. It's very interesting to see the comments that are, that are attracted. Well, and you just hit the one that I seem to hear more often than not, for, especially from those who are the detractors about this project for one reason or another. Whether it's the route, whether it's the cost, whether, the, the question they keep asking is why? Why are we doing this? And, and I don't know that there's an answer for that. I mean, I understand the answer that's being given, uh, and and you know we can go into the economic uh, development aspects of this and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We've heard all of this stuff before, but I don't think it's swaying anybody. No, uh, it, it doesn't appear to be at this point. Uh, you know, there's uh, a very solid uh, group of supporters that have done everything in their power to um, to promote the project and and then there's uh, we don't know the numbers because as far as I know nobody's done any uh, you know scientific polling but there there really does appear to be a, an undercurrent a, a sizable undercurrent of uh, concern opposition uh, outright skepticism which which leads to the question about what's going to happen next year I mean the you know the, with this project uh, and people always draw the analogy, John, between this and, and the, the debate that went on for way too many years about the expressway. Uh, but I, I think even in the darkest days, uh, you know, when the NDP government canceled the funding for the the, the uh, north-south part of it, and I, there was always this sense that yeah, but the majority of people are still on side with this thing. Uh, That's right. There's there's a there's a very vocal minority that were opposed to this project for the same reasons a lot that we're hearing about LRT, the cost, do we really need it, yada yada yada, all that sort of stuff. I'm not so sure uh, about the LRT debate. I, I I I don't know that I can say with confidence that yeah, but the majority of people support it. I'm not so sure that they do. I I don't I can't even say that the majority of council supports it. 
No, uh, in fact, uh, pretty much everything we've looked at would suggest otherwise. Uh, I won't embarrass the individual, but I spoke to one of the most ardent LRT uh, supporters a couple of weeks ago, and, and I flatly put it to him. I said, if there was a poll taken tomorrow, do you think uh, uh, it would favor or, or be against LRT? And he immediately said, no, I, I think the, the vote would be against it. And that's, that's one of the most vocal and visible uh, uh, LRT supporters. He went on to argue that, you know, this discussion that we've been hearing lately, that leadership requires that we do things that people don't want us to do, uh, you know, so, uh, so we went on with the discussion. But, you know, I mean, I, I'm frankly surprised that somebody hasn't done some polling at this point. Uh, it's too bad the uh, journalism wasn't... Uh, as lucrative as it was back in the 80s when uh, a poll would have already been done by now. But it's uh, it's a big expense to undertake for any organization. Yeah, and, and again, to, to go back to the uh, you know the Red Hill uh, debate that, as that analogy, uh, there was polling that was done of various parts of that discussion and that debate, uh, which is why you can say with some confidence that there was always a, a strong support, majority support, uh, for the project, notwithstanding what was going on on the political end of things. Yeah, but, we did, actually, I was involved in that. Uh, we There was a group formed, uh, that was when I was... Uh, before I got back into doing news, I was uh, doing a communications business, and we um, we had a, a group formed, uh, a pro express expressway group, and and we passed the hat, and we did do a poll, and uh, right out of the gate, uh, what we did was we asked the just the question, uh, are you in favor or are you opposed, without any other information, just a flat out question. And I think it was something like 66% in favor. Uh, and then we, we asked them additional questions, talked a little bit about economic growth and, and some of those kind of issues, and the number bumped up to about 70 or 75%. And, and the core opposition stayed very, very firm at 18%. And then there was obviously a group in the middle that weren't sure how they felt about it. But when you had that kind of a poll... Uh, you know, at your disposal, then you could move forward with some confidence because you you knew that uh, it was uh, favored by the public. In this case, uh, you know, there may have been polling done and and the results simply not released, but as far as I know, there hasn't been anything done so far. Well, and I find that surprising as well, that, that either one side or the other uh, has has not actually tried to substantiate their point of view here by by going to the public and asking them about this. I mean, there's been talk about referendum, and I'm, I'm, I'm not a big fan of referendums anyway. I mean, I... I, I don't even buy this argument that, well, that's the true democratic process. Not really, because uh, you, you pay elected officials to make decisions about spending on these issues. I mean, if, you know, if you're going to re- be governed by referendums, you may as well get rid of city council, which, by yeah, the way, is another I, argument I, we could have. But. I tend to agree. I've, I've, not, I've not been, uh, you know, I've heard the referendum argument. I, you know, I think uh, 2018 is uh, only roughly, we'll be into that year in, you know, like 13 months. And, uh, you know, I, I think we have elections in 2018 federally or provincially and uh, uh, municipally, and there's your referendum. So I, I don't see any any value in, in trying to stage a referendum uh, prior to that. And, and frankly, I, I don't think it makes a lot of sense to add it to the polling that we'll be doing in the fall of uh, 2018 because you've got an election and uh, people, people can make their their views known through that process. Well, they're going to have a provincial election in the spring, and then the fall, of course, will be the municipal election. Yeah, it's 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 going to be a very pivotal year, I think. And, uh, you know, depending on, on where we are with the project, I know they're scrambling to try to get contracts let and, and to get the thing designed uh, prior to 2018. But it's they've admitted, uh, everyone involved in the project, I think at one point has said that it's going to be a really significant challenge to get all that in place before uh, 2018. What about I, some of the... Oh, go ahead, John. Uh, my, my guess is they'll, they'll get it done because 2018 is, is really going to be a question mark year. Um, you know, for, I, I think we're going to see some significant uh, change uh, at the provincial level and possibly at the municipal level. What the questions obviously from why that we talked about a couple of minutes ago, 
the the one that oftentimes comes up as as, as almost a deal breaker in, in some people's minds is, all right, you know, who's going to pay for the operating expenses on this thing? And I and, and the answer we always get is, well, that's yet to be determined. Well, somebody knows. I mean, they say it's being negotiated, but we've heard some stories from KW and from some of the Toronto projects that uh, that would send a chill through anybody who's an LRT supporter right now to say, well, wait a second, we didn't know that was going to happen. Is that going to happen here too? And the answer is, well, we don't know. But it seems as if those communities are getting blindsided by some of the information that's coming out after the fact, and I think that's causing a lot of apprehension here. Yes. Now, in the Toronto case, if I understand the deal, um, uh, the TTC is actually going to operate the LRTs there. They're going to collect the fares, but they're also going to pay the maintenance. Uh, I I would say that whoever collects and keeps the fares would would be the, 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 the party that's is charged with the operation and maintenance, and at, at some point there was, uh, I asked the question uh, some months ago uh, as to whether Hamilton HSR was even going to get the fares on the um, on the LRT, or, or were we effectively going to have two transit systems in the city, one owned by Metrolinx and, and one owned by the city? At that time they said they were, they were negotiating, but, but clearly whoever is getting the fare box uh, it'd be, you know, just unthinkable that you know Hamilton would not get the fare box, but would still get the maintenance costs. So, and, and but then the question will be: is is the fare box, uh, you know, once you subtract the bus lines that are going to be taken out of service, will will the fare box uh, provide enough revenue to uh, to handle the maintenance and and still cover the operation of the system? We just don't know until we see how people take to the to the service. Well, given the fact that public transit in just about every city is tend to, tends to be underfunded, you got to know that there's going to be a shortfall, and that's the obvious question: who's going to make that 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 commitment to, to cover that thing? Uh, and that cuts both ways. So, you know, when you talk about where the fare box is going, I mean, does Metrolink come back and say, "Well, if you want us to do the maintenance, then we have to take all the fares," uh, which would beg the question: then why? What's the what's the financial incentive for the city at all? Then uh, is it just the economic uplift and? Uh, and if, if Metrolinx is going to run this system, and as you say, there'd essentially be two transit systems here, uh, what's the guarantee that there's going to be any coordination between the two of them? Because that was one of the selling points of LRT anyway. Well, uh, you know, the, the, the problem is, uh, and, and I'm not sure where the, the answer lies, but we, we really are uh, moving along. Uh, we're, we're in something of a race to get the contracts let and to get the system designed. And these fundamental issues appear to be still subject to negotiation. And uh, I've, I've never seen a project where, where major decisions like who gets the money, who pays for this, uh, you know, that's still up in the air, while at the same time the, the actual operational aspect of building the thing and designing it, it seems to be moving ahead uh, on schedule. It's, a, it's you know, uh, it, it appears to me that these questions really needed to get answered a couple of years ago, and uh, where we sort of got two parallel processes going on, and they're out of sync with each other. Well, I, I'm wondering, really, because of that, is, is somebody already with has that information? I mean, have those decisions already been made? And is the reason why they are quote unquote negotiating simply because they disagree? I mean, well, it's uh, Metrolinx or the Ontario government or the Transportation Ministry or somebody, John. Unless they're totally inept, and I don't think they are, they've got some sort of a, a game plan here as to how they want these systems to be implemented and how they want them to, to, to be operational. Uh, and, and maybe the city disagrees with that. I'm sure that there have been some discussions about that. But I, I'm with you on this one. I thought that information is, is critical uh, to find out exactly how much this is going to be, where the money's going to go, and how much the, and and who's going to cover the operating expenses on this. That this is like saying, yeah, I'm going to come and work for you uh, at your company. Uh, we'll negotiate a salary and all that stuff later on. Don't worry about that. Well, I'll just start working for you. You don't do business that way, and they certainly not. Sh- they shouldn't be doing it that way here. Well, and and the question that that popped into my head uh, just along these lines about all these un uh, still to be negotiated or still to be announced issues is who's actually doing the negotiation on behalf of Hamilton is, is there a negotiation team uh, I mean mr. Johnson is is on an implementation team uh, you know uh, dealing with the public and uh, you know preparing uh, 
design plans and, and liaising with uh, affected parties and so on, but who's, who's negotiating? Or do we have uh, a team from legal or, like, who, who's actually doing this? Or, or, or are there negotiations underway? Uh, you know, it's kind of interesting that, that that aspect, the negotiation side, has really not been explored very much. Well, as long as people are going to sit here and say, well, we need more information. I mean, this this website and these 77 questions uh, is, is, is a, a nice start at this whole thing. But, I mean, they're not the questions that people that are standing on the fence or that are opposed to this really need to have answered at this stage. And, and I don't think you're going to get a consensus on LRT uh, until that's done. And and I agree with you. I mean, you know, I understand that, you know, the, the could, council's already been told that they're not going to be able to reconsider this unless there's a two-thirds vote. I get that. But they can delay this thing, John. I mean, because there's things like an environmental assessment. There's some, some funding announcements that are going to have to be made. And, and they can stall with those things, which is going to stall the project, you know, until they get some answers. So the sooner that that information is forthcoming, I think the better off everybody's going to be. Yeah, I know I haven't, uh, you know, my contacts with uh, with council, I haven't detected that there's going to be an obstructionist move made, but uh, there, there's certainly a lot of concern, um, particularly in the wards that are not the, the downtown wards and are, are not going to be directly affected by LRT. There's, there's definitely um, uh, some very watchful, uh, activity going on, and um, and and I've always said you and I have talked about it that I mean it's one thing to to accuse uh, those members of council in the in the uh, non LRT wards of, of dithering, but I I really do uh, and and I've been told that what they're largely doing is reflecting the feedback they're getting from constituents. They're not simply making it up. They're they're getting a, a lot of uh, feedback that's. Uh, put them on the fence. And 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 I, I understand where they're coming from. And whether I agree or disagree with them, uh, that's that's the reality. I mean, they've got their eye to 2018 as well, John. Let's let's talk about that political reality. Uh, there's nobody on that council right now that I'm aware of that doesn't want to get reelected next uh, election. And, and they're obviously going to be listening to what those constituents are saying, whether it's the right decision or the wrong one. Uh, they're balancing right now between, well, what's the best long-range plan for the city? Uh, but more importantly, it, it, and, and, you know, that's, it's a neck-and-neck neck race right now, but right now probably more importantly is, am I going to have this job after 2018? Well, and, and having so many uh, fundamental unanswered questions at this late date is, is making the situation even worse because there's, there's just so much. Uh, we, we, you know, we, you can only tell people, well, well we're going to sort that out later. We'll get that information. We, we hope to have that information down the road. But, uh, you know, uh, it's, uh, it's pretty tough if you're in a position of representing a, a constituency and, and the, the, there's simply no answers to those very basic questions about funding and who's responsible and what's going to happen, you know, to other bus routes. And, you know, there's just a whole lot of balls in the air, frankly, uh, when we're supposedly about a year away from letting contracts. Look, at, here's the whole thing. I mean, from the Meech Lake Accord way back that when uh, to this thing, I mean, people, and I'm talking about taxpayers right now, I think are very reticent, John, to give anybody a blank check at this stage and just say, yeah, go ahead. I think that sounds like it's a really neat idea. Uh, we'll worry about the money later. I mean, that's what Mulroney did at Meech Lake, too, basically. Well, we haven't worked all this stuff out yet, but just you guys sign it, and we'll give you the details later. And, and, and of course, it got defeated as a result of that. And, and the concern here is, is if this information is not forthcoming, I think you're going to have some of the people that might be passively supporting this at this stage fall off the wagon, uh, simply because they're saying, okay, if you're not going to tell us... That and we don't trust you to begin with, and holding back information like this is making us trust you less. Well, and, and the other underlying issue is because this is a joint project between, well, it's really more of a provincial project uh, uh, on our property, so to speak, but, you know, the very fact that uh, we, we have a government at Queen's Park right now that uh, I don't think we've ever seen, uh, not even Harris in, in his waning uh, days, was, was as low in the polls as this current government. And, and I think, you know, with the hydro issue and uh, just a whole variety of, you know, we got trouble with, you know, we go back to the orange ambulance thing and e-health. And th- I, I, don't, I think there's a, a lack of confidence in, um, in 
the provincial government basically to manage big files and and i've never seen that uh, you know going back to the you know the people would disagree with government policy but there was always a sense that you know the province of ontario at the end of the day could could carry out major projects effectively there there's some real doubt about that i think right now and that's one of the reasons the uh, the current government's uh, ratings are so low there i think there's a real fear that in certain areas, they just don't know what the hell they're doing. Well, because they've got too many balls up in the air right now, and, and LRT is certainly one of them. That's a concern, and, and you're right. There are a number of other things. The hydro issue is there. Uh, sometime, sometime in, in the next 12 months or so, there's, there's probably going to be another discussion about uh, you know the, the, the road situation, the highway situation here. I know that's, that's a subject a lot of people don't like to talk about, but you know, there's still a proposed project uh, from uh, from the airport to Fort Erie, and then over to connect the 400 series highways, uh, and that's got to have. And and again, they've had that on, on their desk now since they got elected, and they haven't done anything about it. So you're right. I mean, the, the ball's in the court of the provincial government right now to start coming clean on this. And 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 if they want to win people over to their side, they're going to have to just be honest about it and and lay some numbers out here. I think part of the problem, Bill, as well, is a, a lot of these decisions are still political. And uh, the reality is, I, I think the reason there's so many unanswered questions is because the answers are probably coming out of the Premier's office, uh, ultimately, and uh, they've just got a whole bunch of files right now that have unanswered questions, so I'm not sure we're at the top of the pile right now. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. We're heading down towards the uh, the final few days, of course, of 2016. And uh, it's, of course, one of those times when you reflectively consider what this past year has brought us. And uh, we want to focus on local uh, events and local politics uh, emanating from City Hall specifically, city staff, city politicians, etc. And uh, just what kind of stuff we got from them this year. Uh, To that end, we're uh, so pleased to welcome Laura Babcock back to the program. Of course, she's the president of uh, Power Group. Laura, thanks so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. My pleasure. Well, were they naughty or nice at City Hall this year? <laughs> Do you know what? We did the Osho year-end uh, special last night where mm-hmm. we awarded the best and worst and all that good stuff. And really, they were irritating at City Hall this year. <laughs> but they're, they're because we got into unnecessary fights and, and conversations and money-wasting. Uh, but it wasn't at the level of, you know, a massive scandal like we saw with the public works issue a couple of years back or or some other big, big problems. So it was an irritating year to watch council, irritating to watch money that was being spent uh, spuriously on, on consultant contracts they didn't look at, on meetings they didn't need to have. In um, the argument they always make, Bill, that, you know, the city has a revenue problem. No, no, it doesn't. It has a spending problem. They always find money when they need to, right? It's, it's a whole issue of how they choose to spend it. Uh, so it was irritating from that point of view, irritating to watch the LRT thing blow up unnecessarily and embarrass us, um, you know, irritating to watch councillors stick their foot in their mouths around everything from how they talk to city staff to how they talk about Columbia. So an irritating year, embarrassing year, but we've had worse. Let's let's talk about a couple of things you brought up here. And I want to get on to the LRT. I had a discussion with John Best about that just a few minutes ago. Uh, about the, the the website and the seventy seven most asked questions, etc. Uh, that's one of the things I had written down as a, as a surprise. I I didn't think that LRT was going to be an issue this year, Laura. I counseled well, previous year. Counseled said, "Hey, we got the money. That's great. Yeah, well, we're not crazy about the you know the the line, but okay, we'll do that. And we, you know, can't kick, you know kick a good gift horse in the mouth. Let's let's go with this. Now, all of a sudden, in the last twelve months, this this has become a rather contentious issue again. Well, and it didn't need to be. I mean, whether you like LRT or you don't like LRT, I think there was a little bit too much political grandstanding going on and too many power plays taking place. And and, uh, certainly uh, I'm critical of Sam Marula for putting forward that affirmation motion, which wasn't necessary and blew the whole issue back up open wide. Um, You know, Ted Collins floated the referendum option. I'm glad that he shut that down once he realized there wasn't really the appetite for that. But... It didn't need to blow up again. It was more of a power play to say, you know what, uh, let's demand some some clarity or some loyalty or whatever you want to call it. Let's let's make sure that we're really recommitting ourselves. It wasn't necessary. And so what that did, 
as is often the case in these situations, Bill, is they had opened up Pandora's box. The box was closed. Everything was fine. <laughs> you know, you might not like the train, but it was in motion, and, and the planning was happening at the city level, and, and everything was kind of copacetic. And then you open this up, and people get feel like it's a chance to remake the case for and against it. And then we even saw it go right up to the premier's office, kind of, I think, getting frustrated by Hamilton looking like, as, as I'm, I like to say, we don't just look gift horses in the mouth around here. We punch their teeth out. And so you saw Ted McMeekin coming out of cabinet shortly after the whole brouhaha. I mean, the whole thing was unnecessarily stressful. Uh, you saw Graham Crawford getting all those businesses to put their logos on posters just to prove that there was some solidarity for a decision that had already been taken. So it was an unnecessary bunch of Hamilton drama. And I understand a lot of people don't like the idea of LRT, but to your point, it was like anything else. The decision was made, the funding was allocated, and the planning process was underway. It didn't need to go back to the discussion on the on the core project principles again, and, and that's what Hamilton unfortunately did and wasted money on it. I mean, even that big meeting that had to happen, Bill, the city lawyers have to sit through all that. You know, you don't think that costs money to the taxpayer when council has to have hours and hours of marriage? Oh, sure it does, yeah. Sure it does. It's ridiculous. You know the you know the uh, the sad part about this that whole scenario too, was because uh, I agree with you. I think the 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 tipping point here was when Council Marilla put this motion, this reaffirmation motion, uh, the notice of the motion anyway, and that's that opened this whole thing up again, threw gasoline onto what was a, at that point a smoldering fire. But right. but Sam's a guy who supports the project. Usually it's it's somebody who's opposed to a a policy or a decision that would ask for some sort of a vote to try to, to garner some support for for their point of view. Uh, but but he said, you know, on, he told you guys, he told me, of course, on this program, that it was to smoke these people out that didn't really like it. Well, why? Who cares right. what it, they think? It, it's it been there, play. done that. Yeah, it was a power play. And then there was the unfortunate characterization of it by the mayor of kind of a put-up-or-shut-up vote. And that, of course, got people's backs up. And then it allowed councillors um, Skelly and Whitehead to go on this taxpayer, you know, crusade where they were going to say, oh, you know, we don't, it doesn't really benefit the overall taxpayers, especially not up here on the hill. So, you know, we're going to open this thing wide up all over again. And, and it just was a bunch of unnecessary, uh, strife really for Hamiltonians over the summer. And a lot of it, if you talk to the bureaucrats, you know, or even to the mayor, they say, oh, no, no, it's going ahead. It's going ahead. Um, but you know what, that kind of public brouhaha, that that dysfunction around the council table, that what looked like an unnecessary power play by Marula that failed, I mean, that, that whole thing costs the city. It costs us in reputation. It costs us in lost productivity. I, had, I remember you had me on the show the morning after, and I was just fuming because so many business leaders all summer, all year, when I would go into their offices for strategy meetings, they'd say, Laura, what the hell is going on with LRT? How can we invest in this city? How can we expand in this city? How can we plan in this city? If the city makes a decision that's so historic, gets all this funding, and then looks like they're going to put it in jeopardy. I mean, it really takes a toll bill on the city's momentum when you have council play these games. And the analogies, uh, I guess the the expected analogies have started to rise. Oh, here we go, the stadium debate all over again. And it, it does it, absolutely lower, tarnish the reputation of city and the city council for that matter, too. Because oh, you, you heard you heard the, 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 the feelings from an awful lot of people is these guys just can't make a decision on anything. Well, it, it looks petty. It looks petty and irritating. And that motion for affirmation wasn't necessary. It was an overplay. And, you know, uh, perhaps Sam will want to argue with me his, the reasons for it. Maybe he thought it had merit, but it blew up. And what it does is it has consequences. It really has consequences. Because people are investing in Hamilton. I mean, this is, this is the dream we've had, Bill, for, what, 15 years? We've been talking at least about the fact that the city went through some really rough times. And we really needed to get some traction. And it was so difficult. And there were so many programs and so many false starts. And then finally, 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 we can say that there's a legit renaissance happening in the city, that there is real investment coming into town. I spend most of my time talking to Toronto Implants, who want to do some serious investing in this city, and, and restaurateurs and everybody else. And it's real. It's not hopeful. And I know it hasn't trickled down or it hasn't impacted everybody's standard of living. And we need to make sure as we seize on this moment we've been waiting for that every everybody gets to experience it, that we're not just, you know, pushing people out and gentrification, all the rest of it. But it is the momentum we've waited for for so long. And so when these people are coming to town or when people are investing, 
and they see counsel possibly screwing up a billion-dollar deal that they worked for a decade to get. They look at it and they say, you know, this city, the political culture, the dysfunction of this council is limiting the desire to really be a part of Hamilton's revitalization, and that is incredibly frustrating. We've waited so long for legitimate economic traction and growth, uh, and when council looks as though their petty games and power plays are going to jeopardize that, I think it has ramifications. Well, certainly it does. And and look, at I'm I, I'm totally sympathetic to those that are saying, look, at the province is dropping the ball here, or Metrolinx, or whoever you know, is making the decision, because there's still some very important questions about funding and, and operational costs, the things that have to be answered. And somebody in, in Toronto has the answers to that. But that's not city council's fault, and that's not city staff's fault. But it's almost, Laura, as if they, they, they this was too much of a good thing, and they just couldn't stand it. And, yeah. and, I, and I get where Sam was coming from, as he explained on our program, that he wanted to smoke these people up. But what he did is he emboldened the people that are opposed to it and, 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 and threw gasoline onto that, those smoldering embers. And now all of a sudden, you've got you know posters going up. You've got billboards going up in opposition to this. You've got city councillors right now that have taken different positions uh, than they did initially. Uh, and, and maybe there were a bunch of them that were secretly not really in favor of this but didn't want to speak up because they didn't want to say no to a billion dollars. I don't care as long as they say yes to it. That's okay. I don't care what their inner feelings are. But now, all of a sudden, this is in doubt. Well, I'm glad that they put up 77 responses to questions. And I listened to Donna Skelly on your show, and she she asked legitimate questions about answers that are still needed from Metrolinx and Queen's Park. And on a major build like this, there's going to be questions, and what are the costs going to look like? And these are all things that we need to discuss. Uh, but it's not the fundamental root of do we get this spine of transit funding infrastructure that's going to connect up with the BLAST network and, and the GO and create this regional transportation. I mean, I mean the, the part that LRT in this little initial track plays is so much greater. And so when the Pandora's box got opened up by Marula and now we're back to the fundamental discussion of do we want the LRT, no, we're way past that. You know, that, that little line is not, is not a panacea for all the transit issues in Hamilton. And it is not perfect, and we still need specifics on, on, on many different aspects of it. But it is part of an integrated transit network that's been planned out for 20 years. And if you hear the city manager talk about it, you know, it's one of the reasons why he came to Hamilton, because he wanted to have such a great transit network that people could retire here and, and still feel fully accessible and could get around everywhere. And so the, that little piece of LRT is the spine of a much bigger network. So when councillors seize on these little micro points of data that they don't have yet, and they try to make the conversation back to this sort of fundamental, can we afford it, do we need it, do we not, they are negating and ignoring the much broader picture, and I think oftentimes they're doing it just for political populism and for political gain. And that's where I have the issue with it. They had years to oppose LRT way back when the city pitched to the province that they wanted it. They have seen years of studies that show the broader transportation connectivity that that little line represents. And so for them to try to make it back to this singular issue that people can kind of grapple on and get upset about, I don't think that's fair to Hamiltonians. I don't think it's fair to future generations, and I don't think it's fair to the millennials who are wanting to make a life here. We need this this transportation network, and LRT is a key piece of that. What about uh, council conduct this past year? Because that's been an issue in the past. Did these uh, folks play well in the sandbox together? <laughs> that's a good question. I think they played better with each other this year, but I don't think they played terrifically with staff. And, uh, and I've been that, that's been an ongoing problem, hasn't it? It has, but in the, in the past year, I think, and we've seen it over the years um, where there was some, you know, council discipline on uh, where there was a councillor who was, was speaking roughly with some staff, with staff, and we've had moments over the years. But this past year, I think what was problematic uh, was, you know, Terry, Councillor Whitehead, and, and uh, I've been, I've talked to him directly about this, and as you know, Terry's a good guy, but he sometimes lets his communication get ahead of him. And for him to be calling into your program when there was a city staffer on the phone, you know, on your show, or to be phrasing things to city staff in a way that puts them in an impossible position around the bike lanes. And some of that, I mean, it hasn't been great. Uh, and I think that council, always, and even Councillor Ferguson, when he made the comments at council about Columbia, you know, there have been moments where the city has, city councillors have got their foot in their mouth uh, and, 
muddied the waters on important public issues and done some things that are outside of their own rules of conduct. So it hasn't been great from that point of view. But between each other, we haven't seen as many of the big throwdown fights as we've seen in the past. But you know something, and you've counseled, because you and I have talked about just about all of those incidents when it comes to conduct, and, and the piece of advice you've always given them consistently, both publicly, and I don't know whether you've done it privately or not, is own up to it and get on, move on with it, and don't try to make excuses. And that time and time again, they keep doing that. Oh, 100%. And I have talked to them. You know, some of them do call me, and I, and I will always sit down and have a conversation if they if they really want either my communication expertise or, or just as a observer locally as a pundit. It comes down to this, you know, uh, a scandal is not a scandal because of the initial act. A scandal is a scandal because of how you handle it. And so with the Columbia comment, it was a, it was a comment that was way out of date and way unfair to people from Columbia, of whom there are many here in the Hamilton community, and it was offensive to hear someone in power characterize their country that way. So if you're saying something, even if you think it's funny and it's clearly not funny, just say, you know what, I shouldn't have said it. I need to be educated on how Columbia has changed, and my characterization was unfair to the people who are from that community who I represent as a city councillor. That's it. Uh, instead, we get this sort of this sense of dragging things out and doubling down or, or being kind of dismissive of concerns. And, and I'm not just talking about Lloyd in that situation. It's any time. You know, I had one counselor go to me, oh, well, you know, the city staff were fine with what I did. Well, how, how do you know that? What other answer are they going to give you? You know, you're the one with the power. So I think sometimes city councillors forget that when you have the power, just like in corporate leadership, Bill, when you've got the power, with that comes great responsibility. Mm-hmm. And you can't just treat people um, on Twitter or on the radio or in council chambers like you would treat them if you were just one of them. You're not. You have power. You have to be more careful with what you say, and you have to take accountability more quickly. It's uh, going to be an interesting year coming up. We've got about 30 seconds left here. Uh, continued discussions about LRT, uh, the, the developments on Pier 7 and 8, uh, they're going to have to get down to the fine-tuning of some of that stuff, too. And uh, let's face it, there's an election coming up the year after that. So uh, performance is going to matter considerably in the next 12 months. Yeah, I really will, and I think the waterfront will become a much bigger story. Yeah. I hope that LRT moves on and we get a better handle on our on our discussion about the the city divided between the urbanist so-called agenda and, and the mountain. I think we need to heal some of those rifts. Um, so I'm, I'm optimistic that 2017 will be a more productive year for the city, Bill. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.